just give a clap offering to God right now? Yes. I don't know if you do, but I feel his presence here. I know God is in this room, right here, right now. So good morning, everyone. It's um, a privilege to be in front of you today to say welcome to church. Um, it's good to see you. It's good to, I know for those online, it's good to see you who are watching us too. Um, and happy new year, new lunar year to, well, those who are the countries that um, celebrated. Um, I, I was listening to the scriptures this morning, I think from Psalm 104, and I just heard the reading say something like, he gave us the moons for seasons. This morning, it just made me realize it's actually true. And today is the Lunar New Year, so praise God. Who am I? I am Gozier Manisiobi, um, an intern of discipleship here at FBC Davis. And um, this is a church. This is a local church here in Davis. And one of our, our mission is to um, help everyone discover faith in Jesus, to grow in love for God and love for others, and to live as ambassadors of hope by the power of the Spirit. And I can tell you, every time I come up here, I, I try to say this, I can tell you from experience, the little experience I have here, the church is pressing into these three things intentionally. And God has been helping us. Um, if this is your first time of coming here or visiting with us or you're new here and uh, you have questions answered that, you need, uh, that you need answered or you just want to see someone, I invite you after the service, please go to the connect table just outside and you get plugged in. Um, and you also get the chance to get a gift card to a beverage of your choice. I'd like to inform us of the things that have been going on or that are coming up in the life of the church. And the first is Alpha. Yes, Alpha. Um, prior to last week when Neil Peter did a very great introduction for Alpha, the word Alpha did not have much connotation for me. Um, it was just Alpha. alpha. <laughs> you know, but I, I've got, I've, I went to look it, look it up online and I'm amazed at the possibilities and potentials of what it holds in store. So, Alpha is the perfect place to bring your questions about faith and questions about life around a low pressure table with dinner. And it starts next week, Monday, that's the 30th, from 6 to 8 p.m. The, what they ask if you're interested or if you have friends you want to invite is simply go to the connect table and you can get signed up or you can check online and you'll see the sign-up form also. That's one. The second is um, this afternoon we'll be having our semi-annual business meeting. And yes, the name sounds drab. I say it again. <laughs> I simply call it a family meeting. We'll be having a church family meeting this afternoon, just right after church. It will be at the fellowship hall. And the things we discuss is the life of the church, the um, health of the church, the financial states of the church. And we get to vote on decisions that um, are important and pending in the, in the church. So please, um, when the service is over, after you say your highs and greetings, please um, make your way to the fellowship hall. Okay? And the third thing, this one I hold dear to my heart. Um, let me frame it for us. As a church, we recognize that God is interested in the oppressed, in the marginalized, in those on the margins, in the poor, in the orphans, in the homeless. And I was reading just this week, Matthew chapter 25. And I heard this parable Jesus was telling. And he said something. 
He said, there will be those who the king will commend and saying, I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me water to drink. And they would ask him, hey, when did we see you on the streets? Like, when did we do this to you? And the answer the king gives to them is, when you did this to the least of my brothers and sisters out there, you did it to me. And as a church, we want to lean into that. And so we're partnering with um, Heart of Davis, formerly known as um, IRWS, Interfaith Rotating Winter winter Shelter. And um, one of the things they're doing throughout this winter is sheltering those who are homeless and who don't have a place and providing food for them. So FBC signed up for one week of meal provision, of just dinners. And so here's the ask. If you or your family or your home group are interested in providing dinner for 15 people um, for one day, just pick one day, come meet me outside at the, at the connect table after the service. Um, the dates will be between February 19th and 25th. I think it's a great thing to lean into. Because when you do it for the least, one of the least of God, the brothers or sisters out there, you've done it for Jesus. Wow. Um, that's all for me today. <laughs> it's so good to see every one of us here. So what I'll just say right now is, let's stand up and go to someone you did not come with and, say, and greet them and say hi to them. All right, you crazy people. Go ahead and take a seat. My name is Peter Nittler. And hey, hello. And I am uh, the college pastor here. And so it's great to be up here. It's great to be with you. And let's just start like this. Okay, if you could have been there, you could have been there and just looked around and done sort of like a 360. Everywhere you could see would have been desert, desolate. Nothing, not even a cactus. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of all that nothingness, a little spring shoots forth. And the spring does what springs would do on dirt. It starts to make mud. And it starts to go a little more and a little more and a little more. And it makes more and more and more mud until the spring starts to grow and, 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 and get stronger. And now all of a sudden, the water is like flowing and gushing. And all of a sudden, what was just lifeless and what was just dead is now a beautiful garden full of life it's sort of like popcorn in a pot you put the heat on you put a little oil and you just wait to start to hear what might happen and all of a sudden pop 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 and like life is being brought forth from this land all of a sudden trees are popping up some of these trees are seem useless to you except just to bring beauty to make the world look more and more beautiful and then some trees it's very odd some trees, they are, they are growing these like colorful little orbs on them. And you could like walk up to the tree and just like sort of yank it a little bit and take it off. And if you like peel it or bite into it, it would like fill your mouth with sweetness and juice. And it would, be, it would, it would give you energy to keep exploring this wonderful garden you found yourself in. This place which was lifeless and dead and dormant desert ground now is abundant and ordered and peaceful. The dead land had become alive. And then stay with me here. Okay, so that same mud that formed all these other things, the creator God who made all of this stuff, he reaches down into that mud and he forms man and he forms woman and he 
breathes life into them. He breathes life into them, and they become alive. And we are told that the land, the garden, was good, but the people were told they were very good. Masterpieces, actually, like walking, talking poems, existing in the world, telling the world of what God is like. And those people were to take care of this paradise. They were to use its raw materials to be like the creator, to be generous and creative and powerful. And he wanted them to, to cultivate the garden of life so that they would have ever-increasing joy in it. That's what he wanted for them. And he wanted to be right next to them while they did it so that they could enjoy his life-giving presence all the time while they were there. Like a never-ending pot of chocolate fondue. Everything in order. Everything in rhythm, everything in beauty. And if we could sort of snap uh, a picture of this moment and put it in like a cosmic uh, photo album or, or a scrapbook, what we would label this is this is life. This scene, this is life. And it can be life as long as they don't eat of that one tree. For on that day, it's over. On that day, they will surely die. And so after a crafty little chat with a crafty little snake, they eat of it. Crunch, crunch, crunch. They fill themselves with the fruit of death, but they don't go six feet under. Their hearts, they actually, they keep beating. Their, their brains are firing neurons still. They didn't die. So what's going on here? Was God bluffing? Or, this is my sketch, or perhaps maybe death is the best word to describe what happens to these, to these humans, what happens next to them. They are banished from the garden of life, and they are forced into the chaos of wilderness. Sure, they're physically alive, but something deeper is going on. They're cut off from the source of life. They are no longer experiencing life to the full. They are no longer secure with one another, but they're ashamed with one another. They're no longer experiencing the abundance of the garden, the abundance of the resources. Now they're experiencing the scarcity of the wilderness. Where there was access to God, full, unbridled access, now he seems far off. In the scriptures, life or death are more than just things that happen to you at the end of life. They are ways of being in the world. And the human beings, the tragic story is that they have left life and they have entered death. They are physically living and they are spiritually dead. This is the original zombie story. And you might be saying, Peter, can you pump the brakes? Okay, this is a series on Ephesians, is it not? You bet it is. Okay, and so let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is beginning a theologically dense 10 verses. And the story is this is the story of the Bible in miniature. This is the story of God and his people in 10 verses. And here's how he begins it. He says, and you, that is all people, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul's assessment of human beings is that we're dead. And we're walking. We're dead people who walk. That's zombies, man. That's what we are. 
So so that story of two people choosing death to turn their back on God's life and being ushered out of the garden and into the wilderness of death, that story didn't end with those two people. That story kept going. That story is called the rest of the scriptures. That story is called human history. And it's the preamble to Ephesians 2, chapters 1 through 10. And here's the hope for this morning. Here's my big hope. Okay, by all accounts, these 10 verses that we are going to encounter are some of the highest points in all of the New Testament. Okay, the theological truths that we are going to discover in the next half hour are so sublime that it is tempting to split them up and just gaze at each one individually until we weep. They are so good. But the problem is when we do that, when we sort of atomize these as just truths to know, that's exactly what happens to us. They become things that we know and things that we understand. And I think the call for us today is to do something more than that. I think what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is not calling us to know and understand something, but it's calling us to be a part of a story, a story that continues today. And so I think these 10 verses are best understood as a story, and we're going to tell that story this morning. So let's read the thing, and then afterwards we're going to walk through the story in three chapters. Capiche? Okay. So it goes like this. It starts in Ephesians 2, chapter 1. Paul says this again, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable Riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. That's the word of the Lord. Let's dive into chapter one. Chapter one is called The Zombies Dig a Pit. Most stories end with death. This story starts with it. And starting like this, again, Paul is, he's tapping into the main story, the tragic state of every human being is just like the original pair, okay? We were all made in the image of God and we were built for life, but we are actually dead. This is not a happy place to start. And I will just warn you, it is going to get bleaker and bleaker. Why are we dead? Why are we dead? What killed us? Paul says, we were dead. We were buried in our trespasses and sins, which are related. Okay, the trespasses and sins, related but not the same thing. So a trespass, what is a trespass? A trespass is something that you just straight up know is wrong. You see the line in the sand and then you just do it anyway. So, for example, I am under no illusion that, like, if I were to cheat on my wife, that would be a good thing to do. 
So um, I know that it would cause immense pain. I know that it would violate my marriage covenant. It would be unloving in a million different ways. I see that line very clearly. It's bold. And so if I were to do it, that would be a trespass. I would step over the line. We're going to do it anyway. Well, then what's a sin? What's a sin? Well, it's a, Neil has said this before, and I think it's helpful. A sin, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. See, you were created to be an agent of blessing and an agent of flourishing and an agent of peace in the world. That's sort of why God created you. And very often, we do not measure up to that original purpose. And so when we don't measure up, we miss the mark. We don't hit the bullseye. So staying in the marriage metaphor, it's not perfect, but for example, there are many ways in which I miss the mark of being a self-sacrificial, love her like Christ loved the church kind of husband to my wife. And one of those ways off the top of my head is that I have a tendency to abdicate my responsibility as a member of the marriage pair to think proactively about our future together. And it causes some annoyance at times. So, uh, but I don't go into each day thinking, what's the best way for me to abdicate my responsibility of proactively thinking about the future? I just live my life and don't think about those things. So I miss the mark. And every once in a while, it causes pain. Every once in a while, it causes strife. You see, we were created for a purpose and with a purpose. And when we don't do those things, we don't love our neighbor. We don't live generously. We don't bring blessing and flourishing, we miss the mark. And that's sin. So we are dead because of our trespasses and our sins. And again, it's a little too simplistic to say this, but I think it's helpful. What that means is that we are dead because of the conscious evil that we do, the things we know are wrong that we do, and the things that we're sort of unconsciously doing that is evil and missing the mark. It's the times we eat of the forbidden fruit and the times we fail to be generous and fail to love our neighbors. These things have put us in a pit of death. And the pit gets deeper. Because you might think, well, that's okay. We've had a bad run of it, but if we string, we string a few good days together, we start making some good choices, we try really, really hard to do the right thing, we can fill that pit back up. And we can go back to life. I don't think so. It won't work. Because we are not walking in death on accident. We're not walking alone. We're following. We are following the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. And we're following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We are, everyone in this room, we are to our core followers. Many of you remember Dan Seitz. Um, He was a beloved pastor here for many years and one of my mentors. And when he left and we were sort of saying our goodbyes, it became crystal clear to me that one of my favorite things that anyone ever said to me was, hey, you kind of remind me of Dan. That some of the, fa- my, the favorite things I have about myself, the things I like about myself the most are some of the things that I learned through following him. He gave them to me. I took my cues from him on how to preach. I took my cues from him on how to think theologically. I took my cues from him on how to have a conversation, how to ask a good question. I took my cues from him on how to make people feel welcomed. Eventually, what happened was Dan's ways, which I was sort of mimicking, didn't always know I was. Eventually, Dan's ways just became my ways. Didn't feel like I was following someone. Felt like I was living my life, looking a lot like Dan. (laughs) We are, to our core, followers. And we become what we follow. So the world, okay, 
We follow the course of this world, the world, this age, the land in this dichotomy that is not governed by God's goodness and his creativity, land that has been marinating in human beings' deep tendency to choose what is best for me and mine and don't really care about what's good for you and yours. And this happens in a million different ways, small ways, like, hey, I'm hungry, so I'm going to take more of the spaghetti. I don't really care if you're hungry. And if you don't get enough, I'm going to give myself a bigger bowl. But I mean, you take that little thing and you magnify the intensity, you magnify the amount of people involved, you magnify the stakes, and you do that over millennia. Now it's not choices we make sometimes to do bad things. Now it will eventually become just the way it is. It will eventually become just the way it is, totally normal. So then, what happens when we follow the world? What happens when we let the world, which has been steeping in all that, give us our sense, our, our sense of identity? What happens when we let the world, which has been steeping in all that, tell us what it means to be successful? What happens when we let the world, which has been steeping in all that, tell us how to understand communities and cities and nations and power and wealth? Well, I kind of think we'll be like sourdough starter. Like the longer that thing keeps going and going, it doesn't get less sour. It gets more sour. It gets more complex. It gets more nuanced. It gets more refined, and the cultures, or whatever's happening in that bag, it gets more, again, more complex and nuanced. It gets more baked into who we are, not less baked in the longer we keep it going. So in other words, we will become more like the world. The ways of the world will start to just become our ways. And all of a sudden, things that should feel to people who are supposed to be people of life, things that feel antithetical to life and flourishing and peace and all that, Things that are dehumanization in all forms. Oppression, racism, poverty, radical individualism, unbounded consumerism. This just starts to be, hey, that's just sort of the way it is here. Like I woke up this morning very early to finish up some of these slides and my doodles and um, to see that 10 people had been murdered in Monterey Park. This is what happens in the world. This is what the world has gotten really good at doing and calling normal. And when evil and darkness like this become the way it is, we are deep in the pit. And even that, and the, even that feeling that we can sort of, that we might be tempted to just move on, cognitively move on from the fact that 10 people were just murdered, again, that shows us kind of par for the course here. So we're becoming more and more like the world, when we follow it. And you might think, that's fine. We'll choose a different path. I didn't know that I was following the world. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to follow the path of life now. You can't. You can't. Because the pit is deeper still and bleaker. You remember that snake that somehow convinced these two people who were so steeped in the goodness of God and the goodness of the garden, he somehow convinced those two people to just choose to live in death. He's still out there. And Paul is not ashamed in the same way that I might be ashamed to say that the reason that you can't just pick a different path is that there is a personal and no kidding active agent and element to to evil and death that is organizing the world. The world is not neutral. The world is being organized by a malevolent agent. And in the garden story, the snake, Paul describes him as the prince of the power of the air. 
And what he is doing, and the, what Paul will talk about the rest of Ephesians and all over the place, um, he and the powers, what they're doing is they're organizing this world. They're setting up the infrastructure of not Eden to lead us more and more and more into death. To be honest, this is hard for me to wrap my mind around. I don't really like talking about these things. It makes me think I'm talking about a fantasy world. But honestly, it's not unlike the way that neuroscientists, <laughs> some of them, are being paid a lot of money to addict us to our phones. It's not that unlike that. And we don't feel, as we go about our days and we go about our world, that, we are being, that our worlds are being organized to actually lead us deeper and deeper and deeper into that addiction. But there we are in the grocery line, and we just reach for the phone. We didn't choose to do that. We're addicted to that. And we didn't make the choice to be addicted to that. People are being paid a lot of money to organize our world and our infrastructure to make that happen. Our wills are simply not strong enough to beat that kind of thing. So it is not wrong to say that we are enslaved. We are trapped here by the powers. We are trapped in death. We cannot get out. But the pit is still deeper. It's not just that we're acting... Um, it's not just that we're trapped. We actually kind of like it. Paul says, a surprising thing to me, but Paul says that we are acting not just on the whims of some sort of malevolent dictator. We are acting out of the passions of our flesh. The desires of our body and mind. See, the grip that death has on us is so strong and the, description, or the deception of the prince and the powers is so fine-tuned that we've been convinced that death is life and evil is good and captivity is freedom. That the way the world is, that sort of the evil that exists out there that I'm a part of and I experience, we can't imagine life without it. And hey, sometimes it makes life easier. Like I think about this when I sit down to work on one of these talks or whatever, do some work at a coffee shop and I go with my... MacBook on the table, underneath my iPad, underneath my iPhone, underneath the greatest product in the history of mankind, the Apple AirPods. And, uh, you know, my world has been made so much better in my mind by those things. We would not be having any doodles without an iPad, okay? And, but I don't really know how those things end up at the Apple store and then end up in my house. I have reason to believe there's a lot of suffering that goes into those things but makes my life pretty good. And then what if I were to take a stand against that? If I were to say, you know what, I, I denounce this kind of manufacturing of tech. I denounce it. You know what I would feel? Boy, would I feel superior to all of you with your Apple products <laughs> and all you lemmings who are out there just buying the stuff. And right away, boom, I just dehumanized you. So even as I try to take a stand, I try to live with life, death has such a grip on us that we cannot do it. We cannot escape it. Death won't let us go. Okay, how you doing right now? <laughs> Are you feeling heavy? Are you feeling irritated? Are you feeling hopeless? <sighs> Good. <laughs> that means you're ready for chapter two. Chapter 2, but God. It's been said that these two words are the quickest and most succinct description of the gospel. But God. In Genesis 6 through 9, evil in the world had gotten so out of control that God 
or we were out, out of hope, out of options, but God had Noah build an ark, save humanity. Genesis 12, the people of God, again, out of control violence, they're taunting it in God's face, that we're better than you. But God chooses a family to what? To bless the world in Abraham. Then that family of God was enslaved in Egypt, was under the thumb of the most oppressive power the world had seen. But God rescued them from death and brought them to the promised land. Jesus Christ was buried and dead and hope was lost, but God raised him from the dead. Saul of Tarsus was a helpless Pharisee. He was blinded by his own ambition and moral perfection and hatred of anything that threatened it. But God met him on the road and gave him a new name and gave him new life. And we, we were dead. No hope. We were enslaved to death. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is what God does. He saves so let's tell that story. God did not want us to be the walking dead. And so he goes to battle. A cosmic battle against the powers and against death itself. The entire infrastructure of evil and darkness that's enslaving us. And it's all been building to this. One of these two immovable forces was going to have to move. And so God does something very strange. He actually becomes one of us. Jesus of Nazareth. And it's very important that he was never infected with the death that we are infected with. That he actually lived a life that we were created to live. He lived in the, in the realm of darkness, but he lived like he was still in Eden. He lived like he was still in the garden. That he was tethered to life, even while he was surrounded by death. And darkness. And so the, the drama of this battle is what happens when pure life goes up against death? What's going to happen there? You know, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't play by the rules of, of death and, and darkness. His tactics are different. His tactics are a little unorthodox. He actually jumps in to the pit with us. And then he lures death in and lets it play its trump card on him crucifies him, kills him, buries him, lets death play the trump card. Oh, sorry. And lets death think that it has won. But God raised him from the dead. Jesus is made alive. He is raised up. And not just that, he's put on the throne of the of throne of the universe. He is defeated. He has humiliated death and darkness. They have lost. They played their one card and they lost. What are they going to do? Kill him again? You're just going to raise again. Life wins. The newspaper headlines the next morning would be today is the first day of a new world. God has defeated the powers. God takes back the throne. And then where do we fit in? Where are we in that story? Well, imagine with me that this battle, this cosmic battle, is like the climax of those Avengers movies where they're like in downtown Manhattan and they're like throwing taxi cabs at people and they're running into buildings and just billions of dollars of collateral damage is happening. 
Well, we are in that collateral damage. That's where we are in this story. We're in that collateral damage. And maybe a piece of the Empire State Building fell on our car and like it's trapped us. We're as good as dead. We can't get out. And then like Captain Jesus, he's going to fight the battle. He's going to fight the darkness. And he just happens to see us. And with sort of a flick of his wrist, gets rid of the wreckage. And we are able to stand up and walk freely out of the battle. We're saved. And if this happened to you, you might go home and you might open your journal and you might write in your diary that night, Jesus saved my life. I was as good as dead and Jesus saved me. And so the story that begins to emerge when you read the newspaper and you put your diary side by side, the story that begins to emerge is the story of salvation. This is what it means to say God saved us. So let's open your diary first to see what happened there. So as you process the event of what happened to you, what would be crystal clear to you is that Jesus is the hero of that story. You were trapped. You were hopeless. If not for Jesus, you would be dead. This is what our chapter one was all about, right? You were not strong enough. You were not clever enough. And the weight of what was on you was too heavy to ever get out of the pit. You were as good as dead. So you keep processing. You keep, you keep writing and you keep thinking, what does this mean? And you have this disarming realization that this new life that you've been given, you think, I didn't deserve that. I didn't earn that. But I also didn't just like get lucky. It wasn't that Jesus happened to see me and it was sort of a casual thing. He flicked a wrist and I'm saved. Jesus saved me because Jesus wanted to save me. And now tears maybe are are flowing down your cheeks and they're smudging the ink that you're writing on. And you come face to face with this life-changing truth that God saved me because he loves me, because of his mercy toward me and because of his grace for me. Twice Paul tells us in this passage that you were saved by grace. And in case it wasn't clear the first time, he repeats it again in verse 8. You were saved by grace. This was just not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. And I have no idea how you read that and how you hear that, but I got to tell you, I don't know why that truth has such a hard time penetrating my heart. Honestly, I feel sometimes like I am will hunting in Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you've seen the movie. I'll tell you about it a little bit. But Sean, uh, in Goodwill Hunting, Sean is the Robin Williams character, back sweater guy. He is a therapist for Will. And uh, he's trying to get into Will's head and into Will's heart that all of his abuses, the things that have sort of made him this sort of violent, petulant character, that actually they're not his fault. Some horrible things happen to him. And so in this um, um, emotional climax... Sean, the therapist, repeats over and over, Will, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he's moving closer and closer. And Will's like, yeah, no, I know. I know. It's not my fault. Like, no, no, you don't get it. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. He's like, yeah, no, I know. I know. Shrugging it off. And no, you don't. You, you don't get it. He's getting closer and closer. Will starts to push him away. And he keeps going closer and closer. He's backing him up into a corner saying, it's not your fault. And then finally, eventually, the dam breaks and will lets it in 
this truth that he just wasn't accepting that was going to set him free. And 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 then they embrace this massive, big hug. Matt Damon is just weeping and crying and bawling. And and it changes his life. It sets him free. He finally let it in. And I feel like this sometimes. I feel like Paul is telling me, Peter, God saved you by grace. It was not because you were good. And I'm like, yeah, no, I I get that. No, I know. I know. No, 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 you don't know. You don't. God saved you because, listen, he loves you. No, no, I get that. No, yeah, fine. Thank you. You know. No, 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 you, like, listen to me. You, (laughs) Peter, you are God's beloved. He didn't want you trapped in slavery into death and darkness forever. He's not disappointed in you. He loves you. And, you know, every once in a while, the reality of that hits me just like it hit Will. And I feel the freedom. I feel the chains being loose. I feel this immense wave of, of gratitude and like joyful humility. And at the end of something like that, <laughs> if that's our story, if that's what we write in our diary, the only thing we're left to say is thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. I was dead and you gave me life. And what's crazy is that the next morning when you get the, new- when you get the newspaper, and read about what happened. If it's possible, the news gets even better. Because as you read, the story unfolds to you that he didn't just save you. He didn't just give you a good day. He actually defeated your captor. He defeated the thing that had been enslaving you. You don't have to go back there anymore. You never have to be enslaved again. And now he's, he's actually sitting on, on the throne of this world. He has replaced death with life. Today is actually the first day of a brand new world. Being human no longer has to mean slavery to death. After today, there is a new way that we can be human. Jesus made you alive. He raised you up and he seated you with him in heaven. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's much more to you than meets the eye. That's for one thing. Because what is true of Jesus just happens to be true of you. You are no longer a member of the walking dead. You are walking royalty, able to participate in God's kingdom now, today. Let's turn to chapter three. We'll bring us home. Chapter three is walking poems. What does this mean for us now is the question. It doesn't mean that there won't be trouble. It does not mean that there won't be trouble. Darkness and death are still around. We're clear about that. I mean, come on. Paul was chained to a prison guard as he writes this. The difference is that that the prison guard might think that his boss still runs the world. Paul knows that there's actually a different boss in town. Paul knows that there's a different king and that he belongs to that king. Okay, so to know what this means for us today, we need to start looking at verse 10 and staring at it for a little while. So verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Okay, notice that we're in the present tense now, okay? So that word, workmanship, is where we get the word, the English word, poem. It's, the, it's poema. And it means handiwork or creation, but it has a particular nuance of, of rhythm and orderliness and beauty. 
So it's pretty remarkable what's being said here, that we, all of us, we who were dead, we were in bondage to sin and death, and we were agents of chaos in the world. We are falling deeper and deeper into the pit. Yes, that us, that we, we now are being transformed into something brand new. We are now not dead. We are his poema, his handiwork, his masterpiece. So salvation is not just what happened in the past. It's also transformation into the people of life. Transformation from what we were into people of life. We were dead. We were agents of chaos. Now we are his living, beautiful, walking poems. We walked in trespasses and sins. We were following the ways of the world. We were following the prince of the air. And now we walk according to the good works which God prepared beforehand. His hope for human beings all along is available, is coming true. So to close, let's check in with that banished pair that we left at the beginning. What if you told them that darkness had been defeated? The darkness that they had brought into the world that kicked them out of life. What if you told them that that darkness was gone? That they were no longer enslaved? What would have been the first thing that they would have wanted to have done? The first thing they would have asked. Can we go back to the garden? That's great. That's great. Can we go back to the garden? We want to go back to life. Better yet, the garden's coming to you. So wherever you're at in this story, there's more to you than meets the eye. If you don't know the freedom of Jesus, there's actually more to your story than maybe you realize. The pit that you are digging will not lead to life. And you can accept his grace and kindness for you today and experience the beginnings of life. And if you've been rescued, if you've been saved, you may still feel pretty ordinary. You may be pretty disappointed how attracted you are to the pit and how often you find yourself doing things you did when you were in the pit. There's more to you than meets the eye. Even if you don't believe it every day, you are God's masterpiece. He is transforming you into the kind of person he imagined at the very beginning. And now your mission is to walk around this world as God's poem. Living like you are in Eden, in the midst of this scarred world, still scarred from darkness, and communicating to the powers that are still present and lingering, hey, you don't win. God wins. Jesus is king, and I'm his poem. Let's pray. Father, that's my hope, I guess, is that that your people would be communicating to a death-scarred world what life truly is. Um, And I'm confident that there are people who have been saved by you who do not feel like life is abundant right now. And I just wish that you would make it so. (laughs) I wish that you would fill them with your peace, that you would fill them with your joy and fill them with your energy and your uh, perseverance to, to persevere through whatever's going on in life. And Father, help us to long for the day when we are fully and finally in the garden again. And in the meantime, would you help us to be your poems? Would you help us to be communicating your goodness, your life to this world?
We're grateful to belong to you. Amen.